0: Today is Wednesday, January the 11th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. PRN.Live streaming on the Internet. Podcast of the program is available on prn.live on the internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. AT&T drops 411 or 411 directory assistance service for digital landlines. Starting in January... AT&T customers with digital landlines won't be able to dial 411 or 0 operator to reach an operator or get directory assistance. AT&T in 2021 ended operator services for wireless callers. However, Verizon, T-Mobile, and other major carriers still offer these services, of course, for a fee. On at and website, The company directs customers to find addresses and phone numbers on Google or online directories. Before that, everyone knew dialing 411 was to get the information. The operator was the Internet before the Internet. Operator services were a selling point to customers during the late 1800s and early 1900s. The operator was the essential link in the dominant bell system owned by AT&T the operator became the early face of the telephone, a human behind an emerging and complex technology. Well into the 20th century, AT&T offered weather, bus schedules, sports scores, time and date, election results, and other information requests. Telephone users used the service as an efficient way to locate any information. On Halloween Eve in 1938, during Austin Wells' radio broadcasts of the War of the Worlds, New Jersey residents believed Martians were invading and frantically phoned the operator for information on the invasion and to connect them with loved ones before the world ended. The advance of technology like the Internet and smartphones, the deregulation of the telecom industry in the 1980s, and other factors have left human operators virtually extinct. In 2021, there were fewer than 4,000 telephone operators, down from a peak of around 420,000 in the 1970s, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics data. But there are still people who call the operator and request directory help. 411 usage is not insignificant, the FCC said in a 2019 report. The FCC estimated then that 71 million calls annually were placed to 411. The first telephone exchange took place in New Haven, Connecticut, in 1878, two years after Alexander Graham Bell patented the telephone. It was designed to handle business communications, not social calls between local residents. Physicians, police, banks, and the post office were some of the first subscribers. To connect a call, an operator at a switching office would take a request from a caller and physically plug one line into another. Workers had to scan thousands of tiny jacks, always keeping an eye open for lights indicating new cores and ones that ended. During peak times, operators handled several hundred calls a day. Operators played a crucial function because telephone books were often inaccurate and customers could not be counted on to remember updated numbers and addresses. During the first decades of exchanges, Operators also unintentionally became a catch-all for information. It was common for people to call and ask the operator for directions, the time, the weather, baseball scores, and other questions. By early part of the 20th century, telephone companies began to separate requests for information and requests for telephone numbers. In 1968, the Bell System changed the name of its information service to Directory Assistance because too many people were taking the name too literally. In 1920, fewer than 5% of Bell exchanges had automated switchboards. A decade later, more than 30% were automated, according to a 2019 article by the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. The growth of automatic switchboards led to the direct dial telephone in the 1920s. The zero for operator appeared with, with dial phones. On the new Bell dials, Operator was printed in the zero position. The use of 411 also emerged with the dial error. Zero became universal for operator assistance, and 411 was the number for directory assistance. In later years, if you dialed zero and asked for directory assistance, the operator would transfer you over to 411. But electronic switchboards and direct dialing were phased in gradually and did not eliminate the need for human operators. Automatic switchboards were mainly used for local telephone calls. For decades after the introduction of direct dialing, operators still handled long-distance calls, toll calls, and calls to the police and fire department. This meant that operator jobs continued to rise until around the 1970s. Directory assistance was also mostly free for customers until the 1970s, when AT&T began charging customers to curb the misuse of the service and shift the high costs of employing operators and handling time-consuming queries for information. Some people just simply don't want to bother to look the number up themselves. The breakup of AT&T in the 1980s and the deregulation of the telecommunications industry altered operator and directory services. Phone companies began to cut their ranks of operators, automate services, and charge customers fees for calls. As companies increase prices, demand for directory assistance plunge. Meanwhile, the internet and smartphone emerged to replace these services for most callers. In 1984, there were 220,000 telephone operators. A decade later, there were 165,000, according to labor statistics. By 2004, at the dawn of the smartphone age, 56,000 people were employed as telephone operators. While operator services may be nearly obsolete, it's important to consider emergency circumstances where a caller may need to reach an operator and the customers who still rely on these services, such as low-income callers, the elderly, and people with disabilities. AT&T said it would still offer free directory assistance to elderly customers and people with disabilities. And the other services, such as Verizon, still offers 411 services, of course, for a fee. You know what? I think I'm going to call 411 with Verizon and ask who's going to win the Super Bowl this year. LastPass hit with lawsuit over August breach. and August data disaster at password manager LastPass just keeps getting worse for the company. First, it admitted the attack made off with the customer data in a December update. Now, it's been served with a proposed class action lawsuit accusing it of woefully insufficient security practices. LastPass initially said the incident involved the theft of the platform's source code and some internal documents, but said user data was all perfectly safe. After looking deeper, it turned out that the stolen data was used to target another employee, and with that access, the attackers managed to gain access to a cloud storage system to steal user password vaults. The data stolen included basic customer account information and related metadata including company names, end-user names, billing addresses, email addresses, telephone numbers, And IP addresses. A lawsuit has been filed by an unnamed individual who said LastPass failures led to the theft of an unspecified amount of Bitcoin private keys stored in the wallet, which the suit said contained roughly $53,000 in the cryptocurrency. The suit is seeking a jury trial to squeeze damages and restitution out of LastPass for a nationwide class that includes any LastPass user who had data stolen in the breach. ID now required to access online porn in Louisiana. A bill signed into law in Louisiana last year has taken effect requiring anyone in the state looking to peruse pornographic content on websites like Pornhub or OnlyFans to verify their age first. Act 440, which took effect on New Year's Day, requires any website that deals in more than 33 and one-third percent smut content to ID users through a commercial age verification system. It's not immediately clear how most adult websites plan to respond, but Pornhub, owned by Canadian company MindGeek, which is the big daddy of pornographic websites with a monopolistic market share has already begun to require age verification via Louisiana Law Wallet, its digital driver license app. Unsurprisingly, privacy advocates aren't thrilled with a new policy. Speaking to NPR, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Jason Kelly, its Associate Director of Digital Strategy, said Louisiana residents have every right to be concerned. There is the explicit intention in the law that verifiers and websites that are using age verification should not retain your information, but users don't have a lot of guarantees that will happen and the data will be removed or deleted and won't be shared or used in other ways, Kelly said. In addition to requiring visitors to verify their age, Act 440 also puts an onus on pornographic site operators to ensure miners don't gain access lest they be liable for damages resulting from a miner's accessing the material. This is a Catch-22 situation. Chip shortage will continue through 2023. Last year, tech giant Intel released a forecast that many considered to be ridiculous. The chip shortage, Intel said, wouldn't be over before 2024, pretty much because the demand will remain at record levels, all while the investment in production capacity would require more time to come to fruition. You know, when they passed that $52 billion bill, they figured that it would take a short time to get extra fabs or factories up and running, manufacturing the chips? Pat Gelsinger, Intel, says no, it takes 18 months or 36 months to get up and running. And now it looks like Intel was right. The end of the chip shortage not only isn't on the radar right now, but it's also something that nobody can accurately anticipate. It goes without saying that many people hope that the new year would be one that brings the highly anticipated recovery in terms of global inventory. But according to Infineon, one of the leading names in the semiconductor business, this is very unlikely to happen. Speaking recently at an event in Germany, Infineon CEO Jochen Hanbeck said the words nobody wanted to hear. The company is anticipating a long-time shortage, and this kind of makes a 2023 recovery pretty impossible. Most chip makers claim their order books for 2023 are already full, so the demand indeed continues to be strong, especially in the automotive market. While sales of new PCs, tablets, and smartphones declined in the last quarters, and this should theoretically ease off the burden on chip makers, the investments in new generation cost systems view the chip crisis. Anticipating when the semiconductor crunch would be over is rather impossible, not only because of the volatile market, but also as a result of the rising inflation and the increasing risk of a global recession. Research firm IDC said not long time ago that all investments in production capacity could eventually backfire and push the world into another type of crisis, Instead of a very constrained inventory of semiconductors, the market could end up being forced to deal with an oversupply of chips. For the time being, however, most industry experts believe the opposite would happen in 2023, especially as silicon fabs are working around the clock on filling the orders for their customers in the automotive business. Car makers themselves don't seem too optimistic either. Earlier this year... General Motors' CEO said the chip shortage is likely to continue in 2023 and even beyond, therefore anticipating challenging production conditions for at least another year. At the end of the day, the ones who are impacted the hardest are potential customers interested in buying a new car. All the problems in the semiconductor crisis make getting a new vehicle a lot more difficult, not only because of the increased cost, but also due to the painfully long waiting times. At this point, some car makers wouldn't ship certain models earlier than 12 months, with others are telling customers to wait for more to receive the cars they ordered. The chip shortage will continue through the end of 2023. Let's accept the fact that the chip shortage will extend through 2023, and we should plan accordingly. FCC overhaul its security reporting rules. The Federal Communications Commission plans to overhaul its security reporting rules for the telecom industry to, among other things, eliminate a mandatory seven-day wait for informing customers of stolen data and expand the definition of what constitutes an incident. In a unanimous for-nothing vote, the FCC published a notice of proposed rulemaking that Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel said is sorely overdue, as the current rules are more than 15 years old. The law requires carriers to protect sensitive consumer information, but given the increase in frequency, sophistication, and scale of data leaks, we must update our rules to protect consumers and strengthen reporting requirements, Rosenworcel said along with eliminating the waiting period for reporting events to customers. The FCC is also proposing to require telling the FBI and U.S. Secret Service, but is still seeking input on when this should be done. The FCC also admitted in the proposal that its focus in the original breach reporting rules implemented in 2007 was too narrow. It only accounted for breaches involving pretexting crimes that involve impersonating someone to forcibly gain access to secure data. Of its original definition, the FCC's 2007 rule stated that a breach occurs when a person without authorization or exceeding authorization has intentionally gained access to, use, or disclose confidential proprietary network information. The FCC new definition adds accidental disclosures to its definition of breach, which should make telecom companies sit up and take notice. Negligence isn't going to be a good excuse for much longer. Rosenwasser had been floating the stricter disclosure rules since January of last year, months after T-Mobile U.S. saw 100 million customer records leaked online. T-Mobile also settled two data breach lawsuits, 2012 2012 and 2015, late last year. The comment period opened today, giving interested parties 30 days to have their say before the FCC makes its final decision. ChatGBT, an artificial intelligence-driven program that responds to user prompts, has dominated social networks in recent days as viral posts demonstrate it composing Shakespearean poetry, musing philosophically, and identifying bugs in computer code. Made available to the general public for testing last month, ChatGBT set off an internet sensation that drew more than a million users in its first week and reignited interest in an effort to replicate human insight, all the while stoking controversy over potential bias and free speech limits. The new chatbot has passed 1 million users in less than a week. ChatGBT was publicly released last month by OpenAI, an artificial intelligence research firm whose founders included Elon Musk. But the company warns it can produce problematic answers and exhibit biased behavior. OpenAI says it's eager to collect user feedback to aid ongoing work to improve this system. ChatGBT is the latest in a series of AIs, which the firm refers to as GBTs, an acronym which stands for Generative Pre-Train Transformer. To develop the system, an early version was fine-tuned through conversations with human trainers. The system also learned from access to Twitter data, according to a tweet from Elon Musk, who is no longer part of OpenAI's board. The Twitter boss wrote he had paused access for now. Results have impressed many who have tried out the chatbot. OpenAI chief executive Sam Altman revealed the level of interest in the artificial conversationalist in a tweet. The chat format allows the AI to answer follow-up questions, admit its mistakes, challenge incorrect premises, and read inappropriate requests. A journalist for technology news site Mashable, who tried out ChatGBT, reported it is hard to provoke the model into saying offensive things. Briefly questioned by the BBC, ChatGBT revealed itself to be a cautious interviewee capable of expressing itself clearly and accurately in English. Did ChatGBT think AI would take the jobs of human writers? No. It argued that AI systems like itself can help writers by providing suggestions and ideas. But ultimately, it is up to the human writer to create the final product. When asked what would be the social impact of AI systems such as itself, ChatGBT said, this was hard to predict. Had it been trained on Twitter data? It said it did not know. When the BBC asked the question about how, the fictional Artificial intelligence from the film 2001 did it seem troubled? A question ChatGBT declined to answer, or maybe just a glitch. Although that was most likely just a random error, unsurprising perhaps, given the volume of interest. Other firms which opened the conversational AIs to general use found they could be persuaded to say offensive or disparaging things. Many are trained on vast databases of text scraped from the Internet, and consequently they learn from the worst as well as the best of human expressions. Meta's Blender Bot 3 was highly critical of Mark Zuckerberg in a conversation with a BBC journalist. By the way, MetaList was formerly called Facebook, and the big owner is Mark Zuckerberg. In 2016, Microsoft apologized after an experimental AI Twitter bot called Tay, that's T-A-Y, said offensive things on the platform, and others have found that sometimes success in creating a convincing computer conversationalist brings unexpected problems. Google's Lambda was so plausible that a now-former employee concluded it was sentient and deserving of the right due to a thinking, feeling, being, including the right not to be used in experiments against its will. ChatGBT's ability to answer the questions caused some users to wonder if it might replace Google. General purpose AI systems like ChatGBT and others raise a number of ethical and societal risks. Among the potential problems of concern that AI might perpetuate disinformation or disrupt existing institutions and services, ChatGBT might be able to write a passable job application school essay, or grant application, for example. There are also questions about copyright infringement, and there are also privacy concerns, given that these systems often incorporate data that is unethically collected from Internet users. ChatGPT learns from human interactions, and OpenAI chief executive Sam Altman tweeted that those working in the field also have much to learn. AI has a long way to go, and big ideas yet to discover. We will stumble along the way and learn a lot from contact with reality. It will sometimes be messy, and we will sometimes make really bad decisions. And we will sometimes have moments of transcendent progress and value. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell.
1: This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we spend just a few moments talking about business, work, of course, ourselves, IT, computers, technology, and how they all intertwine. Sometimes these are easy issues. We start talking about technology, the technology of the workplace, all of these different things that are, are occurring throughout your IT department, and they, they may be far and away from us. They may be our laptops. They may be our screens and our mouse and our keyboard, and sometimes, like today, it's about us. It's about the experiences that we are going through or our coworkers. And this is a very interesting issue. Now, I'm going to pause for a moment. I'm going to note that a lot of what I'm going to talk about comes from two different things. It comes from Fortune Magazine. They did an article Generation Z is overwhelmed by the tech shame at work and it's keeping them quiet in meetings. And the other part is about this survey performed by Hewlett-Packard of 10,000 office workers around the world. And let's start off, let's set up the whole issue here. Generation Z. Wow. So we're talking about people who are uh, who are basically in their 20s and uh, maybe just a little bit in the early 30s. We're talking about the younger people in the office. And there's a lot of struggles that they're going through. And we, on both sides, the younger folks and the older folks, need to bridge this gap. It's going to help all of us if we can move forward through this problem, um, along with all of the others. These are business issues that we all have to address. And we need to understand kind of this issue to move forward. So. What's going on? Generation Z is, is is starting to realize, hey, they don't know everything that they should know. Sure, they know how to operate Facebook. They know how to operate TikTok and Twitter. And they know how to run Zoom. But there's this idea that because this all comes naturally to them, they have this idea that they know technology forwards and backwards And they don't. And this idea that they know technology forwards and backwards is not only a lie that they've told. Oh, yeah, I know tech. Move aside. I'll take care of it. But it's also on the other side where the older folks, they don't know it. And they're not brave enough. They think, okay, uh, this is kind of a younger people thing. So I'm not going to learn it. I'm not going to worry about it. And they, they think, okay, because they know these things, they must know a lot of other things. Let me give you an analogy. Just because somebody knows how to make an omelet really well, just an amazing omelet, they've, they've got the omelet skill down really well. Doesn't mean that they're going to be a good chef. Doesn't mean that they're going to be a good baker. It doesn't mean anything in regards to any of the rest of the world. It does not mean that they're going to be able to bake a cake or they're going to be able to make the most amazing steak. It just means that they know omelets. So we go through this issue. So this there's this overwhelming shame that's coming along where Gen Z is not able, they haven't learned how to admit some of their failings. And and sometimes that comes from a lot of different areas where people go, "Well, well, you should know this. I mean you're, you're Gen Z, you, you know all kinds of different things. It well, doesn't mean that. They struggle gen z struggles and there's a lot of blame in regards to the because they've got entry level salaries they've got the lower wages going on that they can't afford the higher tech that some of the older folks do they can't afford a lot of the different training that the older folks have received and there's other struggles that come along with this too I want you to think about the last the last few years, a lot of this work from home, they haven't had a lot of that face time that, uh, that has come in previous generations where people understand what are your capabilities, what are your failings, and bring these together and mold a good employee out of it. it do, do I blame the work from home for all of this? No, I don't even blame a whole lot of this on this because we... All of us need to, uh, we need to surpass the whole issue of the human condition. We need to accept when we have failings. We need to accept when we are struggling. And there's no shame in not having that knowledge. There's no shame uh, that is there in your not meeting somebody else's unreasonable standards. So I do want us on both sides to work together. I want us to both work towards becoming better employees, better tech people, better at everything that's out there. And the way we do that is by working together. We admit to the failings. And on the older people's side, we say, look, it's okay. There's stuff I don't know. There are things that are out there in the tech world that I don't know. And it's easy for me to say because I'm, uh, I'm on the radio. But there are things out there that I, Benjamin Rockwell, doesn't know about technology. But I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to talk about it. And I'm willing to make myself better. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank.
0: Thank you, Benjamin. We're used to dealing with system memory. As capacity goes up, it follows a predictable binary scale, doubling from 2GB, to 4GB, to 8GB, to 16GB, to 32GB, and so on. But with the introduction of DDR5 and non-binary memory, all that's changing. Instead of jumping straight from a 32GB memory to a 64GB one, DDR5, for the first time, allows for half-steps in memory density. You can now have memory with 24GB, 48GB, 96GB, or more in capacity. The added flexibility offered by the DDR5 memory could end up driving down system costs, as customers are no longer forced to buy more memory than they need just to keep their workload happy. What the heck is non-binary memory? non-binary memory isn't actually all that special. What makes non-binary memory different from standard DDR5 comes down to the chips used to make the DIMMs. Instead of the 16-gigabits, that's gigabits, modules found on most DDR5 memory today, non-binary DIMMs use 24-gigabits DRAM chips. Take 20 of these chips and bake them onto a DIMM and you're left with 48 gigabytes of usable memory after you take into account ECC and metadata storage. According to Senior Business Development Manager at Micron, you can usually get to around 96 gigabytes of memory on the DIMM before you're usually forced to resort to advanced packaging techniques. Using through-silicon via, that's TSV, or dual-die packaging, DRAM memory vendors can achieve much higher densities. Using Samsung's eight layer TSV process, for example, the chip maker could achieve densities as high as 24 gigabytes per DRAM module for 760 gigabytes per DIMM. To date, all of the major memory vendors, including Samsung, SK Hynix, and Micron, have announced 24 gigabit modules for use in non binary DIMMs. Arguably, the selling point behind non-binary memory comes down to cost and flexibility. For a typical data center, cost of memory is significant and can be even higher than cost of compute. The calculus is going to look different depending on your needs. But at the end of the day, non-binary memory offers greater flexibility for balancing cost, capacity, and bandwidth. And there aren't really any downsides to using non-binary DIMMs and in certain situations they may actually perform better. The evolution of the electric car. The electric car has been in existence for over a 100 years. At the turn of the century, in 1900, about a third of vehicles were electric. For centuries, getting around by horse and cart was a standard mode of transportation. By the 1800s, however, This mode of travel was causing problems on busy city streets. As more people moved into cities, the number of horses dramatically increased, and with so many horses on the roads, such as New York City, had around 150,000 horses in 1890, came public health concerns over disease and mountains of manure. Horse travel, frankly put, was relatively dirty in comparison to the horseless carriage a.k.a. the first electric vehicles, marketed as clean, quiet, and easy to drive. Early electric cars, which resembled traditional carriages, became so popular that by 1900, they accounted for around one-third of all automotive vehicles on roadways. The earliest known full-size electric car was designed by Robert Anderson, a Scottish inventor who built his version in the 1830s though that car and many of its successors didn't go very far at the time. Batteries were rudimentary and couldn't be recharged. It would take about three decades for electric car batteries to improve, and starting in 1881, battery-operated buses began ferrying passengers in Paris, Berlin, London, and New York. A few years later, Iowa chemist William Morrison applied for a patent for his electric carriage which could travel around 50 miles on one charge at a top speed of 20 miles per hour. By 1897, the top-selling car in the United States was powered by battery, though electric vehicles will hold the market for a relatively short time. By 1913, manufacturer Henry Ford had fine-tuned the mass production of gas-powered cars, dropping their price and helping to usher in a new era of private transportation. The price of an electric car in 1912 was $1,750. By today's standards of inflationary dollars, that's over $53,000. By comparison, the cost of Ford's Model T back in 1912 was $650. In today's inflationary dollars, it is $20,000. Fast forward into the 1990s which was less than 30 years ago, there were eight early electric cars in that decade. The first was the Chrysler T-Van from 1993 to 1995. The T-Van featured a nickel-cadmium battery pack. Lithium batteries weren't readily available at the time. Chrysler stated that the T-Van could run for 80 miles on a single charge, but real-world ratings were closer to 60 miles. That was followed by the Selectria Force that was manufactured from 1995 to 1997. The Metro was fitted with a lead-acid battery pack, a three-phase AC monitor, and a single-speed gearbox. The Force was capable of a top speed of almost 70 miles per hour and needed around 9 seconds to accelerate from 0 to 50 miles per hour. The range was as high as 80 miles at a constant speed, of around 45 miles per hour. General Motors had an EV1 that was manufactured from 1996 to 1999. It was the first mass-produced EV for public consumption from a major automaker, but also because it was the subject of a documentary film entitled Who Killed Electric Car?, which claimed that the EV1 program was discontinued because it threatened the oil industry. The EV1 was introduced in 1996, and the electric motor, fueled by lead-acid battery, was good for 137 horsepower. This battery pack had a stated range of 70 to 100 miles. GM switched to a nickel metal hydrate battery in 1999, and the battery increased the distance to 140 miles. Then we have the Ford Ranger EV that was built in 1997 to 2002. While earlier models featured a lead-acid battery, the truck upgraded to a nickel-metal-hydrate pack in 1999. The Ranger EV needed 10.3 seconds to hit 50 mph and reach a top speed of 74 mph. Its highest range rating was 115 miles at a constant speed of 45 mph. The majority of these trucks were leased to fleets before being retired in 2002. The Chevrolet S10 Electric was manufactured from 1997 to 1998. It featured a 114 horsepower electric motor and just like the Ranger EV, it debuted with lead-acid batteries and it was then updated to nickel-metal hydride. Early models returned up to 60 miles per charge while the upgraded versions came close to 100 miles. Honda had a EV Plus manufactured from 1997 to 1999. Honda also joined the EV market in 1997, but with a subcompact car called the EV Plus. Honda went with nickel metal hydride batteries a full year before other companies considered them for production models. Powered by a brushless DC motor rated at 66 horsepower, the EV Plus generated more than 80 horsepower and ran for up to 105 miles on a single charge. Toyota had the RAV4 EV manufactured from 1997 to 2003. The RAV4 EV is far from anonymous, but this crossover became known when Toyota produced the second generation from 2012 to 2014. Like many EVs from that era, the first-gen RAV4 EV was a limited fleet model with only 328 units sold to the general public before its discontinued In 2003, powered by an electric motor rated at 67 horsepower and 140 pound feet of torque and a nickel metal hydrate battery, the RAV4 EV was capable of 95 miles on a single charge. Its top speed was limited to 85 miles per hour, which was higher than most EVs from that era. The Nissan Altra was manufactured from 1998 to 2002. The Outra is a very significant early EV, as it was the first electric vehicle to use lithium-ion battery, now a common feature in mass-produced EVs. Nissan chose lithium-ion batteries for its superior power density in an era when most car makers were barely adopting nickel metal hydride as a new technology. The Outra was powered by an 84 horsepower and ran for 120 miles per single charge. Nissan produced only 200 cars from 1998 to 2002. The ultra most likely led to the development of the Nissan LEAF, launched eight years later. And bringing it up to the present, as of 2020, there are around 50 different electric cars available on the market, with more than half of them built by mainstream automakers, including Audi, BMW, Hyundai, Kia, Mercedes-Benz, Renault, Tesla, and Volkswagen, and that's a massive number compared to the early 2010s when only a handful of EVs were available. If we roll back to the 1990s when only a handful of companies were working on EVs, we can see that the electric car market has evolved at an impressive rate in less than three decades. Presenting Technology Chatter, with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston.
1: Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, we have so many different directions we could go in.
2: Uh, Super Bowl. Uh, we got to do Super Bowl. S-
1: Super Bowl. Even though, you know, it's it's, it's a month away. But I, I know where you're going with this. I know yeah, where, where you're going.
2: Where am I going? <laughs> the big screen. Yes. Yes. Who watches Super Bowl alone? Anybody? Anybody? uh no (laughs) so super bowl really isn't about having a tv set just for you Mm -hmm. super bowl is about having a tv set that you can show off to friends and family you're gonna be the tv maestro you're gonna have the screen everybody else is jealous about that's what it's about now how do you shop for that you know, roundabout now, you could go to CES and see all the new sets there. <laughs> but there uh, is the only place they're going to be. Yeah. The,
1: <laughs> uh, what is uh, this comes to mind? What is what is the general time to uh, time to delivery for the brand new stuff that's coming from CES?
2: Oh, the the, the demo from the prototypes? televisions. Yeah, the, the, and, and anywhere from six months to never. Yeah, well, <laughs> to never. I
1: like that. Yeah, especially since you, know, you and I have both seen a lot of those Yeah, the 180-inch screens
2: vaporware. that you couldn't yes. possibly fit in your house. But, yes. But but they got that big because the dots were each about an inch apart. Yes. Yes. How about the 3D sets that you couldn't watch without getting a headache and you could only watch from a straight on center angle? Oh, oh what about the curved uh, the curved oh, yeah. screens? Oh, I I the, those cracked me up. There is no place to put it that that curve isn't going to find some glaring reflection to reflect back at you while you're watching it
1: yes yes exactly everybody Unless, gets glare and reflection except instead of just one person or yeah, it's couple. a shared yeah.
2: experience that way yes yeah. wait a minute i can't read the score it's <laughs> white to white i don't know <laughs> <laughs> no guys super bowl ladies too you want you want to get a new set Go to places that actually have them and sell them. Mm-hmm. Take a yeah. look at them. Yeah, You're, you're, you're still going to have to deal with choices. How big do you really want it? Here's mm-hmm. a hint. Measure your wall space before you go. Yes,
1: yes. And, and I would suggest, unless you're really you're, you're really driving for a, a bargain and you're not so much interested in the, the visuals of it, Skip the big box stores. Uh, I'm saying Sam's Club and Costco. At least a Best Buy. Yeah, Best Buy.
2: Target isn't always wonderful, but sometimes Home Depot and Lowe's. uh, They used to be okay. I don't think they have TVs anymore. Uh, I
1: I haven't seen TVs in Home Depot or Lowe's in a while. Yeah.
2: But but, I, but but the idea every market, is it, every market has an old fashioned AV seller.
1: Yes, yeah, and that's all. And those those
2: are the good ones. Yeah. Uh, or if yeah. you know if you have to end up going e tail for it, find a set that you know you're going to like by looking at one somewhere. Yes. Oh, it's the last one we have in the store here, but we'll sell it to you for three dollars off. You know, don't go that way. <laughs>
1: yeah. You know, there's there's a good website. I'm going to give this out because this is one I've used a lot. It's Art. T-I-N-G-S dot com ratings without the A, but they do all kinds of different uh, ratings on the televisions about, you know, what the picture quality is and uh, and using it as monitors, using it for movies, using it for sports, all of that.
2: And let's talk about what uh, resolution really means. If you're 4K, 8K, 12K, 16K, 20K or a million, you're still looking at number of dots Better sets with all of those extra dots that aren't being in the original video are interpolating. They're calculating what a mid-value should be and putting it in there. Usually, they also have a faster refresh, so you get a more codachrome mm-hmm. look, a more liquid look to it. Mm-hmm. Faster refresh also helps that. You don't get the little bits of strobing and pixelating. Don't watch crawls on CNN if you don't like those little bits of jump. <laughs> <laughs> uh, audio You've got an out. If you don't like the audio coming from the set, you can go to a soundbar. But where's the programming coming from? That's really where you want your program to come from. Is it a Roku set with Roku built in? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If it is Roku built in, is it the upgrade that lets you use a little mic on the remote to uh, shortcut a a lot of that stuff? Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you need one for cable? Do you need TiVo for that uh, unlock-the-clock recording kind of stuff? Do you want to go with the box from your cable system? Do you want to own a box or keep paying a rental fee every month? How do you want to deal with that? These choices are out there. Think through them. Talk to people you know who understand this stuff. Could be you. Talk to yourself. That's fine. And decide what it is you want to shop Just don't for. do it in public. Well, that's all right. <laughs> and, and please remember... If you're going to have a party for your friends with that set and your team loses, you want that covered on your household insurance.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there's there's probably that. You know, one of the things, too, I would I would tell everybody the um, the best time for pricing for all of the televisions winds up being right about a week and a half before Super Bowl. But make sure you get it delivered in time so you can set it up and check it out. Make sure it's gonna be working fine.
2: best time for pricing, but not necessarily the best time for selection.
1: Yes, yes. so so you've gotta there's yeah, there's you gotta weigh out the balances there. yeah, don't don't get too cheap. Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> every every like holiday that's it's a good reason to give a gift to yourself yeah and, As, us. and the house yes no no As, to us <laughs> oh, oh and to us
2: yes Yeah, to you
0: to me
1: yeah there you go this is benjamin rockwell back to you
0: hank thank you benjamin and thank you marty public service announcements Computer Club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri-State region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The New York Amateur Computer Club has a presentation, AI Art, Thursday, January the 12th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. The website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group has a presentation of CAMO, C-A-M-O, Friday, January the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. The website is limac.org. The Brookdale Computer Users Group has a presentation on my top 10 favorite or most frequently used Windows programs. Thursday, January the 26th. Meeting time is 6:45 p.m. Virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is bcug.com. Tech Ed Connect, formerly Westchester PC Users Group, meets Thursday, February the second. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, February the third. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Meeting site is acgnj.org. The Kingsbite Computer Club meets Tuesday, February the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. And for more information, the phone number is 347-278-7320. The chill of winter has finally arrived. There are many less fortunate people who don't even have the basic necessity of a winter cold. You can donate winter coats to those in need at many of the donation sites near you. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN.Live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on PRN.Live, on the internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of the gang, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, Marty Winston, and Rebecca Mercury, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week,